0: FUSAPOD, conversations about creativity, community, and the things that matter.
1: How do you design programs, hospital programs? How do you think of vaccinations, right? It's all a design question, and it's a very interrelated topic. It's one that we need to challenge our assumptions on. We need to, as a community, we need to start thinking forward, right? It's how do we design better? How do we think through it? The answer is, it's with the people. They understand the context better than we can ever. They understand what their problem is. They understand the need and they have the capacity.
0: In this episode of Fusapod, we talk to Uzma Alam, global humanitarian health expert. We talk about the importance of community engagement in designing humanitarian interventions. I'm Shan Huang.
1: My name's Uzma Alam, and I am a global health professional, specifically working within the humanitarian field. The humanitarian sphere refers to uh, any work related to providing humanitarian aid. Humanitarian response refers to needs of refugees and internally displaced people. Or further, within the health system, humanitarian response can also refer to health crises such as the Ebola.
0: In terms of a humanitarian crisis, it could be everything from, say, a natural disaster, a hurricane, an earthquake a flood, right. or something that's man-made, right? Uh, right. armed conflicts, or civil unrest, right. but also an outbreak of an epidemic is kind of a combination of the two. It's a combination of human behaviors, but also a natural phenomenon mm-hmm. of, of pathogens, germs, diseases that are spreading in a population that start to go out of control. Just
1: to find it better than I could have. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a very unique background that allows me to put on both hats as somebody to work on the ground, but also somebody to work within policy. And that piece is my my research background. And within, within the humanitarian communities, there's this growing recognition that as a group, as a community, we need to start engaging with knowledge management and learning. And one of the ways that can be understood is through operational research. So how do we start thinking about how to provide better responses. How do we start thinking about what the long-term implications of what we do? How do we start thinking about what can we apply from one disease outbreak to another? But then also translating that knowledge into a more sustainable long-term impact where the policy piece comes in, right? So what, how can we use data-driven evidence to align policies to the needs of the communities that we are serving.
0: So in terms of learning, right, especially in humanitarian response where there's already some crisis, some sort of emergency, Mm -hmm. something's already gone wrong. So it's it's usually already a bad situation and you're trying to make it better. So politically it's really difficult, right? Because I think people doing humanitarian work are criticized when things go wrong or they get worse in these situations that are already quite challenging to work in. Mm A lot of these methods in the innovation space of failing fast and failing forward and being iterative and agile, they don't fully apply in a humanitarian context when people's lives are literally on the line or when these situations are already very difficult. So how do you learn and experiment and allow space for that in these situations that are quite often literally life or death?
1: So the, the two ways of thinking about that, right? You very rightfully said people's lives are at risk, you need to respond, and yes, as first responders, as people guided by the humanitarian principles, as people guided by the crux of saving lives, there is, this basic response to go in and provide the very basic needs, right? But beyond that, as a community, we need to start challenging ourselves. What happens if we take the time to take a step back and think through than just responding, right? Are we actually going to save more lives, right? Or are we just doing things the old-fashioned way because that's how we've been programmed? And I think that's where the mindset needs to come in and that's what's going to actually lead us to what we need to do and save more lives. There's this whole concept of it's an emergency. We need to do A, B, C, D. But the reality on the ground is very different. A crisis in Somalia is not necessarily the same crisis in Yemen, right? Sure. And that's where design thinking comes into it. That's where community engagement comes into it. That's where the whole concept of saving lives needs to be expanded and thought of, right? We can't just say that if we do just provide water in a certain way, we're doing what needs to be done. That's not how it's working, and especially now, given that we've all heard in the news and social media and stuff, there's a refugee crisis, there's the biggest humanitarian crisis going on, you know, every single day, 45, thousand people displaced every single day is from their home and unfortunately with you know global warming with conflict political conflict this crisis is just going to grow in number right and the humanitarian community is already overwhelmed for the very first time after years you know just looking at the horn of africa the humanitarian community is dealing with famine across Three different countries at at one single time, and then on the flip side, as we all know, there's it's a lot of politically charged debate when it comes to immigration issues, it comes to funding, it comes to donors. So how do we combine our principles of trying to save the most lives and reconcile it with not only increased volume of crisis but also prolonged? that's the stage the humanitarian community is at now and in my opinion the solution to this is actually community engagement engaging with the community to design for their needs right to understand the culture to go in as not only humanitarian workers but to go in as brothers sisters fathers mothers of the community right because people at the crisis there's one thing that binds them is their culture and sure. if we don't understand this if we don't engage in them you know whatever we provide is not going to be sustainable it's not going to be the right response and at the end of the day it's not going to save lives so it's not going to do anything that we actually want to achieve how do you deal with people with disabilities who are refugees right we usually have pit latrines and stuff like how is this accessible to people with disabilities? How do we design campsites for cultures that separate men and and women? How do you design programs, hospital programs? How do you think of vaccinations, right? It's all a design question and it's a very interrelated topic, but it's one that we need to challenge our assumptions on. We need to, as a community, we need to start thinking forward, right? How do we address these questions? How do we design better? How do we think through it? The answer is it's with the people, right? They understand the context better than we can ever. They understand what their problem is. They understand the need and they have the capacity. It's the crisis of the experts. We are the experts. But it's not. That's not the case.
0: So when I hear the words community engagement, Mm -hmm. this term being mentioned in a humanitarian context. Right. I think that these are people who are already very vulnerable. They've escaped armed conflict or they're fleeing from some epidemic or natural disaster. How do you engage them? Because it's challenging enough in a non emergency context, whether it's, you know, knocking on doors right. or trying to talk to strangers in a neighborhood here in New York City. But mm-hmm. when people are in a refugee camp or just kind of fleeing from right. something, clearly we know that it can't be a one-way unidirectional kind of thing right but at mm-hmm. the same time how do we engage people who are already vulnerable and maybe some of these examples will help
1: you've obviously pointed rightfully pointed out some of the difficulty or the presumed difficulty around community engagement right but having said something is difficult doesn't mean it cannot be done and more importantly By thinking that way, we refuse making progress in what can be done, right? And I think right now, not only do we have reasons, we've talked about this, right? We've talked about the statistics, how the refugee crisis are increasing humanitarian communities are overwhelmed, the policy implications and the donor implications and something needs to change, something needs to change. in our thinking something needs to change of how we respond and how do we provide services better. But we're also in a time where as a community, we've got a lot of innovation. We've got a lot of technologies, right? So there's a time where we can actually take advantage of this and start thinking of how to engage communities Right, And like you said, there are lots of difficulties, but there are also lots of opportunities. And it's a matter of us looking for them. And another thing I think is really important to remember is longitudinally across all the conflicts and stuff, very few of them, about 1%, are truly life-saving emergencies in that we have to act right then and there in the moment, right? And these are usually in the context of conflict. But in cases of epidemics, in cases of floods and cases of natural disasters, yes, it's an emergency, but we still do have time to think, right? And when we start thinking of design and community engagement, there are multiple levels to it, right? We have a lot of access to news, social media, to big data. So it doesn't mean I as a first responder or I as a humanitarian aid worker or or as a policy person cannot familiarize myself with that community, right? So there are tools. So there's this piece that we have already that needs to be used, right? We need to get smart of how do we think of data, how do we think of understanding the context, and how do we understand the culture? And then beyond that, once you've provided your basic needs, right, you've provided the shelter, you've moved people out of harm's way, you've provided them food, you've provided them water, whatever their needs are, which are the standard basic needs, we have to remember that these conflicts are going longer and longer and longer. Longer, right, they're becoming prolonged. Look at the case of the refugee camp in Dadaab, right? It's the biggest refugee camp in the world. It's been there like more than 20 some years. It's not right of us to say there was no time to, to engage with the community, right? And I'll give you examples from, from Ebola. And one of the biggest lessons from Ebola was how it was not necessarily a public health failure, but it was a failure of us recognizing the capacities of the communities in the ground, understanding their practices, understanding their communities. And the data is very clear from Ebola was that once we got the communities involved, that's when the epidemic tide started changing. (laughs) The way Ebola was transmitted is transmitted is by body contact, right? Bodily contact, and one of the big moments, the highly infectious moment, is when dealing with dead bodies. And within West Africa, there was this whole practice of you know washing dead bodies or providing you know last rites, different sorts of cultural beliefs that had very intimate touch between the families and their disease right and one way that we as a community sought to prevent that or break that chain of transmission was to say okay you guys are not allowed to touch your dead bodies you know we're going to come take them and go bury them and there was this huge resistance right communities wouldn't call in and tell us they've lost a loved one for obvious reasons they just didn't want to you know sure you created a new stigma and taboo right or they just didn't want to not perform be able to perform their last rites. And then we got the interfaith organizations involved, we got the interfaith communities involved, the imams and the priests and everybody got together and they actually pulled out messages from the scriptures, from the Quran, and from the biblical text that they took to the communities to say, you know, this is how you deal with dead bodies, you know, bury them immediately, don't keep them about respect and stuff. And that's when people started understanding the message. So we were talking in one language, right? We were talking in this public health perspective, like, oh, it's infectious and stuff. And that wasn't the issue for the people. For the people, the issue was, look, if you can't prevent it, I'll give you this direct quote. I, I still remember it. And somebody just said to me in Sierra Leone while I was on the ground, like, if you can't show me how to stop getting Ebola, or if you can't cure me, why are you teaching me how to bury my dead? I've been doing it for years. I've been here for centuries.
0: It's almost this crisis of expertise, right? Of like, what are you even doing there as a humanitarian relief worker? Exactly, right?
1: And we just, oh, well, we didn't understand the communities. I can go on and on with the Ebola example, right? There were examples around quarantine. There were examples around transmission of saying, don't eat bushmeat. There were communities that had never eaten bushmeat, and yet they had Ebola. So these messages didn't make sense to them, and we didn't think, to engage with them and to try to understand the culture and what it meant, right? So this was our failure. We were trying to respond in a scientific manner, in a public health manner, in a vacuum without understanding our context. And the only way to do it is if you actually talk to the people who've actually got the problem. They have the solutions. They are closest. We are just meant to be there as a bridge, as an organization. We we fail that.
0: I mean, it sounds like it's a matter of one, understanding the context and that the communities understand their context better than outsiders, for obvious reasons. In the example you gave of the bushmeat, if this particular community has never eaten bushmeat, it sounds like it was sort of trying to impose this one-size-fits-all solution exactly. on that community. And I think in the private sector, brands have understood this for a long time, right? So even if, you know, let's take like a Coca-Cola or a McDonald's for an example. I mean, I, I know this is like slightly uh, strange comparison and parallel, between Coca-Cola and McDonald's that are ubiquitous around the world and humanitarian aid situations, but if we kind of forgive this for a moment and go with it, you know, McDonald's is more or less the same everywhere you go, so was Coca-Cola, but they do adapt the branding mm-hmm. and the formulation and, and all of these things no matter where exactly. they go, right? right? Coca-Cola means something different in the U.S. context where it's been around for a certain amount of time, it may be stigmatized in certain communities, mm-hmm. whereas, say in China or some developing country, it means something else, right? And it's dependable safe drink to have or it's it's an aspirational thing Uh or whatever it means something different and so even these aspirationally universal brands understand the importance of localization and so how do we apply some of these principles of localization and local understanding to humanitarian context because no two humanitarian crises Mm -hmm. are the same
1: one thing that goes beyond this right what is the direct impact of this is that how does this actually get results versus what we've just been doing and I think that's you should be at the the heart of all the discussions we're having is that when we start engaging people when we start understanding context we're actually empowering people to do what they need to do and so automatically we've started this circle of change which is empowering and that's what we need but how do we localize this how do we make it Possible, right? And I think this is again a very politically loaded question, but very timely, right? So I think here comes into the interplay of how do international NGOs interact with local governments or local NGOs, right? How do we start engaging with them? How do we exchange capacity? Everybody's got a capacity. So how do we engage with the capacities that are only on the ground, beyond other NGOs, beyond engaging with the government? So why wouldn't we engage with them? Why wouldn't we? through them as a conduit to get where we want, right? Those are the questions that need to be addressed when it comes to localization. But beyond that, it's just not NGOs. I talked to you about Ebola, because it was one of the most recent, right? And Syria, Yemen's another example. It's just not about NGOs. A lot of these communities have a lot of faith-based organizations, right? A lot of West Africa is Muslim community, right? How do we engage with the imams? How do we engage with the priests? How do we engage with women leaders? That's how I picture localization, right? It's about relationships. It's about building partnership. It's about going in to help, not to control. The other part to localization is obviously a big role of donors, right? You cannot just go in and start building relationships. This is something that needs to be sustained. But then also donors need to start understanding that the distribution of funds, if it's going to have an impact and stuff, can just not be a top-bottom approach. It needs to be localized, you know, to use that word, it needs to be localized the way we distribute our funds. We need to put that concept into place that we need to work with local players. We need to provide the funding to local players. We need to provide this capacity to local players to start responding because, you know, in all reality... They're the first ones there before international person gets in sure. or international NGO gets it. It's the local NGOs and the local governments and the local communities that are already responding to their needs, but they're just getting overwhelmed. And if we don't build the system right, then we're already setting ourselves up for failure. That's how I think of localization. Partnerships, which is relationships, which is the human piece and takes time. But then obviously the capacity and big piece of capacity is the funding.
0: On that idea of relationships, it seems like one way to reconceptualize to reframe that is to think about the existing social and community infrastructures, that network of relationships uh-huh. in a given community or group. Right. As as an existing asset or resource, right? Just as if you were going to be helping with infrastructure development. You'd look to see, like, is there already an existing source of fresh water? Then you don't have to truck water in, uh-huh. or if there's sources of building materials in right. terms of wood or stones that you could use, you don't have to ship. Been building materials, like all of these in terms of physical resources we understand, but we also have to think about these social resources that already exist in places while we go in, and of course we can build on them and, and shift them, but these are not, you're not starting from zero. I think my other reaction to that is also thinking about the metrics and the way that humanitarian aid is being measured. Right. So on one hand, there's almost this tyranny of what's easily measurable versus things that are maybe harder to measure but just as important. Mm-hmm. So it's probably relatively easy to measure like how many patients you've seen or how much medicine you've dispensed in a right. in this sort of Ebola outbreak type situation. Uh-huh. But then there's things like behavior change that are just as important to stopping an epidemic like that that are much harder to track but are important and that behavioral change thing involves community engagement right of whether it's using these community thought leaders or influencers through religious leaders or other forms of social networks Uh and other things but that kind of thing is much harder to track and to keep tabs on
1: measurements are a great thing we all know that but it doesn't necessarily mean everything that we measure has a meaning or is good Mm -hmm. right especially in this context if we don't have good baselines if we haven't thought of needs if we haven't thought of capacities and stuff right so it raises the question what are we truly measuring and why and you've already pointed to that that it might just be an artifact of how funding works unfortunately right? right but going beyond that and again comes back to where we started the conversation and you know where i pointed out that it's time that the humanitarian community is waking up to this idea that we need learning we need knowledge management we need to we need to start rethinking of how we respond one of the newer debates, one of the online ongoing trends between this whole area of work is that there's a fine line between humanitarian response and development, sure. especially with this whole prolonged crisis. And in the development context, measurements, taking metrics is a normal, more of a norm. Sure. So again, it comes to the whole question of, you know, if it's not done right now, does it mean that we don't need to do it? Or is there a way of doing it, right? And I fall on the part, like, you should measure whatever you can and you should make measurable what you cannot. There's power in data. There's power in evidence. Especially, again, if we want to start thinking about what we started earlier with the conversation was how do we start changing policies? How do we start having long-term impact? How do we start having influence? So I'm at that point like, yes, okay, you know, donors need us to measure some certain stuff, but we need to question is this the right stuff? and how do we use these measurements?
0: And on the tools of measurement, I think with technological advances, There's also, in some ways, a faster feedback loop and figuring out the right way to deploy them, whether it's through mobile devices or Internet of Things Mm -hmm. or even social media, right, that people in these humanitarian crises often still have cell phones and these cell phones still work. So can they be creating their own data or putting their own data as a form of feedback Mm -hmm. or can humanitarian workers be collecting data through mobile devices? And all of these things, I think, shorten the feedback loops in ways that help us learn. right? But it's still this challenge of what kind of data should be collected and what Kind of data is actually helpful in these situations. Right,
1: for for sure, no no doubt that technology and innovation is going to play a big role. But I think we need to take caution here and understand that some of this information that we collect, there would be ethical implications, and we could be putting the very communities we have there to protect at risk. Sure. And I think that's my that's something that makes the use of. Innovation, something that can just not be instantly deployed, right? And there are lots of cases where we can think of how somebody's data can be negatively impacted they're actually saving their lives, which is at the crux of the humanitarian principle, basically saving lives. I think it's a dual-edged sword, but Mm -hmm. something that needs to be thought of, and obviously the community is engaging in it. I know there are lots of discussions going on, and I know academics and different organizations at the forefront of thinking of this, like what does humanitarian data mean? How do you collect humanitarian data ethically? How do you protect this data, you know? And then also there's this whole concept, obviously a lot of our populations are migratory, right? How do you share this data with them? So sure. these are all very important questions.
0: Yeah, and with this new innovation comes this new responsibility, right? Then the, right. the data security becomes this exactly. new competency right. that's necessary in humanitarian response if we're going to be collecting all of this data right. through and also who does means. Yeah,
1: exactly. And who does that data belong to, right? If a government comes out and asks us for the records of how many... People of an ethnic background we've treated, we know that these people are already at risk of persecution, right? And what is our responsibility? Is this data worth collecting? Do we need it?
0: Right. And it's sometimes safer to not ask that question, yes. right?
1: the question you started asking, right? What does humanitarian mean and what does it define? I think it's everybody's duty and responsibility. It's just not people working directly in the field. It's everybody, you know, design thinkers, data collectors, innovators, entrepreneurs, people engaged in civic engagement, our policies, right? Politics, just us being human beings to engage with our governments who actually form policies that influence somebody's lives across. Or our social responsibility as somebody who understands Something to stand up for the people who are most vulnerable and in need. I'd really, if there's one message I'd like to put out there, is I'd really appreciate people empowering themselves with the knowledge, with understanding what does it mean to be a refugee, what does it mean to, to respond, what does a humanitarian response work, and how to engage with that. It's not. Like I said, it's just not the job of international NGOs. I think it's the job of every human being, as a human being, knowing that there's somebody suffering at some point in the world. There's a life to be saved, and you can empower that. You can make touch a life. You can change that one life, and it counts.
0: Thank you so much, Thank you. Ismael. Lucapod.